Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's Word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15. We're actually going to finish chapter 20 today. Isn't that amazing? And as you are turning, I just want to thank you so much for your prayers for my son Josh and me as we completed our 33 hours of drive time track across the country from Cadillac to Santa Monica. He began his first week of law school at Pepperdine last week and it went famously, so I'm very encouraged and excited about that. Uh, Just a couple highlights from our trip. We uh, got to go to the Field of Dreams movie site in Dyersville, Iowa, and it was was everything I hoped it would be. Uh, We went to uh, a baseball game in Denver at Coors Field, and I just said Coors in church. That's a problem. Um, And then we saw some beautiful scenery in Utah and Arizona. Nebraska, not so much. So God bless our brothers and sisters in Nebraska. So that's where I've been, but where we have been in our study of Revelation, uh, we've made it to the kingdom age. As you can see on our chart with the red arrow, we have gone all the way across this journey across the page. Uh, The 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ here on earth known as the millennium. And that's what chapter 20 is all about. Verses 1 through 6, saints reign. In verses 7 through 10, Satan rebels. And by the way... Pastor Travis, home run on his first time preaching to us, and um, just really, really blessed to get to watch that on YouTube this week, and um, just to hear his heart and to see him in action, and so glad to have him on our team. And now today, verses 11 through 15, sinners reviewed, sinners reviewed. And so if you are following along in your notes, that's your first blank today, sinners reviewed. Reviewed, And they are reviewed in what is known as the Great White Throne Judgment. The Great White Throne Judgment, which is honestly, and I know this is a bold statement, but it is the most sobering passage in all of Scripture. And I promise that from here on out in Revelation, it's just going to be celebration and good news and great stuff. But today is heavy. And if it's not a heavy subject for you today, maybe you need to do some internal examination, but it is a big, sobering, heavy thing to talk about the great white throne judgment. Why? Well, because it is here that the eternal destinies of unredeemed sinners are determined once and for all. So it's a scene worthy of much weeping. Uh, For the sad reality is that you and I will know people who will face the great white throne judgment. And that ought to just tear at our hearts this morning. So what would you do this morning? Would you please stand as I read today's text? It's a short passage. I think there's just something about us standing and acknowledging the reverence of God's word today, especially this weighty subject. Verse 11 in chapter 20 begins... Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, 
and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Would you join me as we pray? So Father, this morning, would you open our hearts to hear what you would have to speak to us through this passage. Again, it's a heavy subject, but you have something important to say to us. So may you break our hearts for what breaks your heart. May we care about what you care about. May we perhaps this morning have a recentering of our priorities and acknowledging what does matter and what doesn't really matter. So I ask for your help um, in preaching the word this morning, and for all of us, including myself, your help in hearing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We have here in this passage a classic courtroom scene. A classic courtroom scene, including the elements of a judge, a courtroom, a defendant, a summons, evidence, a verdict, and ultimately a sentence. And so here in Revelation 20, 11 through 15, we fill in these, these gaps and we, we find these key elements and they teach us something about the great white throne judgment. And the first element that we want to examine today is the judge. The judge. Who's, who's presiding in this courtroom? Is it uh, this guy right here? Do you, do you remember him? The Honorable Lance Ito from the OJ trial. All right. Um, and I bring this up from time to time just because I think it's such a weird thing, but on the night before our wedding was the O.J. White Bronco Chase. So that helps you know how old I am. Um, 27 years of marriage. But so Lance Ito will always have a special place in my heart. Um, but as you can probably guess, no, it is not the Honorable Lance Ito who is presiding in this trial. Is it one of these guys, the, the, the members of the United States Supreme Court? After all, there is no higher court in our land. It, it, the buck stops here, what they say goes. Is it the United States Supreme Court and those justices who are presiding here in Revelation 20? And the answer is no, not even close. Not even close, because there is actually an infinitely higher court with an infinitely higher judge. That judge is identified in John chapter 5, verse 22, where it says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to whom? To the Son. So who's the judge in our courtroom scene today? It is none other than Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the judge. And this is further supported by a couple other New Testament passages. In Acts 17, 31, it says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So what this is saying is that God the Father has appointed the one 
who he raised from the dead to be judge of the world. And that, of course, is Jesus. He will be judge at the great white throne judgment. Further in Romans chapter 2, verse 16. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. How? By Christ Jesus. So with this in mind, we are once again challenged to consider the full spectrum of the personhood of Jesus. He is both Savior, which He most certainly is, but He is also Judge. He is both Savior and Judge. And for, this is important, listen carefully, for every single person, He will be either one or the other. True? He will either save you from your sins, or He will judge you according to your sins. It really is that plain and that simple. And He has given to you this morning the opportunity to determine which role Jesus will play in your life. Will He be your Savior, or will He be your judge? As it says in Mark chapter 16, verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So, in our courtroom scene, Jesus is the judge, but now we're confronted with the element of the courtroom. Where does this trial take place? Perhaps it takes place here, right? The venerable Wexford County Courthouse, which I got to tell you, it's a beautiful building. And if you drive around, you know, America and you go to small towns and places and you look at county courthouses, there are some wonderful, wonderful buildings. And so this this is way cool, but no, it's not going to happen there. Um, Is it this place, which is the building that houses the United States Supreme Court? Once again, it's not that either. Instead, the trial in Revelation 20 takes place in a location of even far greater gravity and importance than this. It's a place of ultimate authority, for it says in verse 11, the Apostle John says, Then I saw a great white throne. Meaning that the location of the courtroom is none other than before God's throne. And you think about the magnitude of that. When we think about what we saw in Revelation chapter 4, the the vision that John had of the throne room of God, and the the Father in chapter 4, the Son in chapter 5, and all that was taking place there, this is a profound place of glory. And the description of this throne in this passage is instructive because it is first described as being great. It is great not because of its size. It is great because of its significance. It is great because of its significance. For that throne, it represents ultimate authority and final judgment. There is no higher court to which one may appeal. This is it. The last word. And further, the the throne is described as being white. It's the great white throne, which signifies the righteousness of the judgments that are handed down from there. The judgment rendered at the great white throne is absolutely pure. It is holy and it is just. It is without error or corruption. 
Perfect justice will be served at the great white throne judgment. Just as it says in Genesis 18.25, it asks a question and it says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the answer to that question is, He absolutely will. For as we have seen in earlier passages, Jesus the judge, He has been described on multiple occasions. He is faithful and He is true. And he renders judgment from the great white throne. As such, everyone will receive exactly what is their due when Jesus rules from the great white throne. There's something else of interest here related to the courtroom. And this, this kind of blows my mind when I think about it. Look at verse 11 again. In the yellow, it says, uh, For he, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And so what, what's, what's that all about? Well, this is actually a really, really big deal, and I don't think this is something that we talk about a lot in church circles, for it is at this decisive moment in the judgment of evil that the material universe is destroyed. You say, whoa, What's that about? I mean, um, the Apostle Peter, he talks about this graphically in his second epistle. I'd encourage you to go back and read 2 Peter chapter 3. In verse 7, Peter says, um, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment, that's what we're talking about today, and destruction of the ungodly, that's what we're talking about today. And then a few verses later in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, my question, as we have been studying the millennium, everything's been going quite well in the millennium, right? Jesus has been reigning. He rules with a rod of iron and righteousness is done. Everything is as it should be. So why now is God going to destroy the material universe after this 1,000-year reign of Jesus on the earth? Why must it be destroyed? I believe the answer is this, because a sin-cursed earth and universe cannot exist throughout eternity. So here's the thing with the millennium. You see, even though Jesus has been reigning on this physical earth during the millennium, it is still a physical earth that has been infected by and under a curse of sin going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And it must be cleared away. It must be cleared away to make room for what? A new heaven and a new earth that we will encounter next week. And that's going to be so much fun. In that new heaven and new earth, there will be no remnant, not even a hint of sin. Amen. All right? And so for that reason, we have to do away with the existing heaven and earth. So naturally then, we should feel free to trash the earth and pollute it any way we want to, right? No. Because here's the thing, and we, we need to be reminded of this regularly, I believe. The original mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve was what? To be stewards of this earth, to take care of it, to cultivate it, to help it to flourish. 
even in its fallen state. And we, we are called to do the same today. That mandate hasn't left. We are also called to be those who steward the earth, to tend it, to enhance it, to cause it to flourish. And when we do this as unto the Lord, that is worship. Now, we don't worship the creation. That's where people cross the line and they go wonky. All right? We worship God, but the God of creation who gave us this creation to steward it, we are to do as Adam and Eve were instructed, which is to steward it. But conversely, our failure to steward the earth is a violation of God's command. What is that called? Sin. It's called sin. So please don't make the error of reasoning that the future destruction of the material universe is therefore an excuse for us to be poor stewards today. That is simply not the case. So, so far in our courtroom scene, Jesus is the judge. The courtroom is before God's throne. There is a defendant that we need to identify, and this is so important. Who is the defendant? Who's on trial? It's identified in verse 12. The apostle John says, and I saw the dead. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Now, let's think about this together, all right? Who exactly are the dead at this point in Revelation? We know who they're not, okay? Because there's been some resurrection that has taken place prior to this. These are not redeemed sinners, those who put their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. How do we know that's not them? Because they've already been resurrected. When did that happen? If we go back to our chart, um, first of all, the first red arrow, the church is resurrected prior to the tribulation. So we have a resurrection then, the resurrection of life in phase one. But then as you can see from the second red arrow, there's a second resurrection of life where Old Testament saints and deceased tribulation saints are raised at the end of the tribulation. That's what, again, John 5, 29 calls the resurrection of life. It happens in two phases. So redeemed sinners have already been resurrected. But there is another resurrection, and that's what we're talking about today, something called the resurrection of death, of judgment. Just as it said back in Revelation 20, verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So if all the redeemed sinners have already been resurrected in the resurrection of life, who is left to be resurrected at the great white throne judgment? Who? Okay, unredeemed sinners. They are the defendants at the great white throne judgment. These are all who have not put their faith in Christ They are the defendants in the courtroom scene at the great white throne judgment. So again, here's a quiz question for you. Will believers be at the great white throne judgment? The answer is an emphatic no. All right, believers will not be at the great white throne judgment, only unredeemed sinners. Believers have already experienced a different kind of judgment when they were resurrected, known as the judgment seat of Christ. Let's put a chart up there and kind of compare the two, okay? This is from David Jeremiah. Um, On the left-hand side, the judgment seat of Christ. Um, Who will be judged in the judgment seat of Christ? That's believers. Who Who will be the judge? Jesus Christ. What is the purpose? To reward the faithful service of God's children in the judgment seat of Christ. Now, when will it occur? Well, at that point of resurrection, that was those two resurrections that we talked about after the rapture and during the tribulation before 
the millennium. So that's for believers, all right? It is a resurrection of believers for the purpose of reward. Now, in contrast to that is what we're talking about today, the great white throne judgment. Who will be judged? Unbelievers. Who will be the judge? Jesus Christ. What is the purpose? To settle accounts of those who rebel against God's righteousness. And when will it, when will it occur? After the millennium, before the lake of fire. To sum it up, if that's a little bit too much, two statements I want to make. First of all, the judgment seat of Christ. It's also called the Bema seat. So if you ever come across that term, it's like, what's a Bema seat? It's this judgment seat of Christ. It is where believers, after their resurrection, are rewarded based on how faithfully they served Christ. Now, it's important for me to note here that our salvation is not by our works and effort. Our salvation is only by grace through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. But there are promised rewards to be given to us at the judgment seat of Christ. We go to heaven because of Jesus. We receive rewards because by his grace we do some good works here on earth. Now in contrast to the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, is this great white throne judgment that we're talking about where unbelievers are judged at the point of their resurrection according to their works and sentenced to everlasting punishment in the lake of fire, which is the next part of the sermon that we're going to talk about. So unbelievers, unredeemed sinners, they are the defendants at the great white throne judgment. Well, at every trial, you must have a summons, some binding legal mandate that brings people to court to appear before the judge. And so it is here at Revelation 20, and that summons comes in the form of this resurrection to judgment, this resurrection to judgment. As God raises the dead, unredeemed sinners for them to have their day in court at the great white throne judgment. Look at verse 13. It says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. A couple of interesting things going on here. First, it says, The sea gave up the dead who were in, in it. And I wonder, why is that mentioned? Why is that a thing? And I think it's a thing, and it's mentioned because of this, the sea. I, I think the, the fact that it's mentioned tells us there is no place beyond the reach of the resurrection of the dead. Uh, theoretically, a body buried deep in the sea that could go down miles and miles and miles and miles to the depths of the ocean would be the most challenging to resurrect, right? But not for God. But not for God. So I believe it's mentioned there that there's no place beyond the reach of the resurrection of the dead. Next it says, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. So we need to ask, what does it mean by death and Hades? I think it's pretty simple in that death is referring to the place of physical burial. It's the grave. And Hades is the place of spiritual burial. And I put that in quotes. And the reason I put that in quotes is because it's not burial in the sense of being asleep or dead. Actually, Hades is a place where the conscious souls of sinners will be tormented when they die. Hades is kind of like the county jail, all right? The county jail. It's a place of incarceration until sentencing, 
and then being sent to the penitentiary. And the penitentiary, as we're going to see, is the lake of fire. So Hades is the, this place of holding, of incarceration until the, the trial takes place. And then uh, unredeemed sinners are sent to the penitentiary, which is the lake of fire. So here in verse 20, it says, death, the grave, gives up the physical body. And then Hades, the local jail, gives up the, the soul. And then here, body and soul are reunited to face judgment and also to face eternity. Does that make sense? Maybe. Okay. Um, the next element in our courtroom scene is the evidence. We know that God is just. Well, for him to be a just judge, you can't have a conviction without evidence, right? So what is the evidence that is brought to the great white throne judgment? Well, verse 12 says this, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So what's the evidence? Um, the evidence is the books. Well, what are the books being talked about here? I think they, they come in two categories. Category one, the book of life. Category two is more general. There, there are some books that we're going to talk about that are outside the bounds of the book of life. So let's talk about, first of all, this book of life. The book of life is a record of the names of those who have trusted Christ and have eternal life. There is a literal book that has the name of redeemed sinners in it. And the Apostle Paul referred to this book in his letter to the Philippians when he wrote, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The problem for those summoned by resurrection to the great white throne judgment is that none of them will have their name written in that book. They did not put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins, and now the opportunity for salvation has passed. And so the checking of this book at the great white throne is really just a formality. It's a legal proceeding demonstrating that justice is in fact being done. And when names are not found in the book of life, there are two other books that are opened. What are these books? Book number one, I believe, is the Word of God. Luke 12, 48 says this, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So again, I believe book one is the actual word of God will be present at the great white throne judgment. Why? Because it is the standard for judgment. Now think about how special that Bible is that you have in your lap. What a wonderful, special, powerful, authoritative book this is. May we appreciate it for being all that it truly is. And so book number one, the Word of God. Book number two is a record of a person's life, including their thoughts, words, and deeds. All of it. Nothing hidden. Every gory detail coming to light 
at judgment. And when the contents of that second book, all the gory details, are compared with the contents of the first book, God's holy standard, that's terrifying, isn't it? There can only be one verdict, and that verdict is guilty. Guilty. When you add it all up, the fact that there is no name in the book of life, we have the holy standard of God's Word, and then we have the complete record of a person's sinful life, it all adds up to a verdict of guilty. But church, for us this morning, let us take a moment to reflect on the fact that without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, we are all guilty. And the great white throne judgment would be experienced. This terrifying scene that is being presented to us today, we would all experience it, each and every one of us. No matter how moral or good you think you are, you have not measured up to God's holy standard. And you would, but by the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus shed blood on the cross, you would be here. But praise be to God that as believers redeemed sinners who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life, our names are written in the book, the book of life. And we do not in any way, shape, or form this morning have to fear this scene of the great white throne judgment because our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. And so here's the thing. When you have Jesus, he is our advocate And we have His righteousness instead of our sinfulness. The righteousness of Jesus has been credited to us, and that's what the Father sees rather than our sins. Well, there's only one element remaining in our courtroom scene of the great white throne judgment, and that is the sentence, the sentence, which is in fact the lake of fire. Look at verse 14. It says, Then death... And Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's two things happening at the sentencing here. Number one, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, which makes perfect sense. There's no need for them anymore. No need for a physical grave and no need for a county jail, all right, holding sinners that are awaiting judgment and sentencing to the penitentiary. These things will be gone forever. They have no part in a sinless eternity. And so, praise God, no more death, no more Hades. Be gone in Jesus' name. Number two, the second thing that happens at the sentencing, and this is where it gets very hard, unredeemed sinners are thrown into the lake of fire where they will be literally and justly tormented forever and ever and ever. This was a subject that Jesus took very, very seriously, and he spoke about it often. Jesus spoke about hell more than he spoke about heaven. He spoke about hell certainly more often than we speak about hell. Jesus called hell a place of eternal torment, a place of unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die, where people gnash their teeth in anguish and regret from where there is no return, even to warn loved ones. It is a place of outer darkness. 
And he ultimately summed up the matter by saying in Matthew 25, 46, and these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And I think there's something significant here. Again, these are the words of Jesus. He leaves no doubt that hell is a very real physical place. And he leaves no doubt that hell is eternal. And again, there's this been a movement, I think, from forever of people wanting to somehow explain away the harshness of hell. Well, maybe annihilationism. We've talked about that before, where people are just, you know, they're, they're gone. They don't have to suffer for eternity. We find all kinds of ways to try to explain away hell. Jesus makes no such effort. He speaks plain truth to us that we might be warned and that we might respond accordingly. Another interesting thing here, um, hell also appears to be in degrees, in degrees. And what I mean by that is, just as heaven will have degrees of reward, so hell will have degrees of punishment. Let me say that again. Just as heaven will have degrees of reward, so hell will have degrees of punishment. Look at Luke 12, 47. It says, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So, again, I believe it's reasonable for us to conclude that just as there are degrees of reward in heaven, there will be degrees of punishment in hell. And so some of you, in a twisted way, may be saying, well, I've been a pretty good person, so I can probably endure and be okay with one of the better places in hell. And what a demonic thought that is straight from the pit of hell. Because as we hear Jesus talk about hell, the very best place in hell is going to be an absolute place of torment and of judgment and of regret and a place that no one would ever, ever, ever want to be. So that is the great white throne judgment and all of its elements. Let's turn for a moment to the question of application. How should we then live? And I think it's very simple for us this morning, and I'm sure it's already occurred to you. Number one, make sure your name is written in the book. Make sure your name is in the book, the book of life. And again, that's not about you leaving here today and trying harder to be a good person. No one is saved by their works. All of our, even our best works are nothing but filthy rags in the eyes of God because they come from a heart that is tainted by sin. Every good thing that we do is ultimately a bad thing because of our hearts. It's about the heart. We are only saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we could probably quote this verse every week and it wouldn't be enough. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is, at the end of the day, a free gift, but a free gift that must be received. And the free gift of salvation is received by faith as we turn from our sins and turn to Jesus alone for salvation. If you're here this morning and you're not sure that your name is written in the book of life, please don't leave here today without taking care of business. 
And I would love to have that conversation with you. I'm just going to linger here at the platform today. Um, those of you, I, I would love to say hi to many of you today, but if you just leave me alone today, give me some space that those who may want to come talk about spiritual matters, that, and that includes those of you in the commons. It's just a few steps to come from the commons to hear the platform in the sanctuary. Um, I'm just going to be available. Let's, if, if you have any doubt in your mind this morning at all, if your name is written in the book of life, let's do business with God today so that you may put your pillow on your head at night tonight and know with assurance that you're a child of God and that the great white throne judgment, the lake of fire, these terrible, tragic, terrifying things that we're talking about today have no part of your future whatsoever. Application point number two, do all you can to make sure the names of others are written in the book. Do all you can to make sure the names of others are written in the book. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, and I believe by um, application he tells us, do the work of an evangelist. Say, Chad, I'm not a very gifted talker. I don't think you have to be a gifted talker to be a gifted evangelist. Because I believe at the end of the day, sharing your faith is about boldly and courageously sharing your life with others. It's not about a sales pitch. It's about a living and abundant life that Jesus promised to bring that is so compelling to others that they want to know the reason for the hope that is within you. God will do the hard work of bringing people across your path for you to share with. Our job is to abide in Him and to live an abundant life that compels people to come and talk to us and want to know for the reason that the hope that is within us. And that's why um, in a couple weeks we're going to start this new sermon series, The Fullness of Life. Jesus said, I have come, they may have life and have it to the full. This is where evangelism really begins, by sharing your full, abundant, compelling life with others relationally, giving you the opportunity to share that reason for the hope that is within you. And when the time comes, God will give you the words. God will give you the words. But we may have some work to do in this fullness of life aspect. And so I'm looking forward, I'm very excited about talking about that in the days to come. So a very sobering, heavy topic with the great white throne judgment, but also for those of us who know Jesus, what a sigh of relief, what a reason and a cause for worship to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross for my sins, that none of this is part of my future. But in the meantime, we've got some work to do, do we not? We've got some work to do. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Again, Father, would you break our hearts for the things that break your heart? May we care about the things that you care about. And certainly you care about lost sinners so much that you sent your son Jesus to die for them. God, again, may we care more about the things of eternity than we do about temporal things. Our comfort, our rights. God, I think about our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan today, our brothers and sisters in Haiti. God, they have such a crystal clear perspective on eternity and what matters and what doesn't matter. God, we need that this morning.
Would you realign our hearts with yours, we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen.